0: Grace Chapel. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I transitioned from full-time ministry to um, full-time therapy. Now I'm just a, a counselor in Lincoln um, and a an elder without a call in our presbytery who gets to come out and meet with awesome churches like you guys who are easy to love. And, um, and so yeah, I get to preach this morning, which is an honor to do. Um, we'll be in Colossians chapter 4 verse 2. If you want to turn with me there, um, it's on page 1185 in your Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. All right, here we go. Verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, we have your book open before us, your true and living words, Um, words that are alive and active, Uh, words that aren't just good advice, but... Uh, that divide um, and pierce our hearts. Um, and so, Lord, I pray for my heart. I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters here. Um, give us soft hearts. Give us hearts ready to, to hear from you, um, to hear your voice, um, to apply your word to our ordinary but uh, beautiful lives, because uh, we need to hear from you. Um, and so, Lord, just be with us in these next moments as you have been already, just through the service, just guiding us, loving us um, by your spirit, just communicating your grace uh, to us. Uh, lift up this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yeah, if, if you were a part of the Small House Church it was the, the audience, the original audience, um, that this letter was being read to. Uh, you would have just heard from Paul at the end of chapter three, just before our text, about what it looks like to be in the family of God. And Paul talked about it this, about this in a way that it would have been really familiar to his audience by framing what life in a home, what life in a church. Should look like in traditional Greco Roman household codes. But what would have been surprising to us as we heard these words read to us is the way that power is used. Because in a home infiltrated, in a home redeemed by the lordship of Christ, power's transformed and it's no longer used you know, for us to assert ourselves over others, but it's used sacrificially, right? To bless the other. It's modeled after Christ's own humble service to us. Previously, Paul, he's, you know, he's laid out how to achieve the blessed community life that's ordered by Christ's love and lordship. Today's text answers, well, once we achieve that, What do we do? Then what? It's here in our text that Paul shifts his attention from, you know, the Christians' relationships with each other to their relationships with those outside of the church walls, outside of their community. But in order for these fledgling house churches in Colossae to have any sort of impact on their other than Christian neighbors, they have to be healthy. They have to be submitting to one another out of their love for Jesus, you know, to move on to their external witness without the internal health would be detrimental to their mission. And we know too many churches like this, reaching out in the name of Jesus to change the world while they're just rotting and sick on the inside, forgetting that it's God who saves sinners, not them, right? And they, too, we, too, need the same grace that we're preaching about. We know churches that swing to the opposite side of the pendulum. We love each other, but hey, let's not spoil this thing, okay? (laughs) Um, And we kind of close ourselves off to the outside world, shielding against discomfort, awkwardness. If someone walks through our doors, that's different than us. I'm curious... You know, as I I mentioned those two sides, which side do you swing towards? You know, which side does does grace swing towards? Whichever side we tend towards, it leads us to an us versus them mentality, doesn't it? Those outside our community are people we're supposed to rescue or people we're supposed to protect ourselves from. Sharing our faith with our other than Christian neighbors, it, it can be something we do the wrong way. It can be something that we just neglect to do altogether. And I think Paul in our text today shows us how to do it right. He, he shows us what we need to do it well. And so how the big question we'll ask today is how do we walk with those outside of our community of faith? Paul suggests, I think three things that aid in our witness to our other than Christian neighbors. First, thanksgiving that keeps us awake. Second, intercession that opens doors. And third, wisdom that answers our neighbor's questions. And so let's let's look at this first one. So thanksgiving that keeps us awake. Look at verse two with me. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So here, Paul exhorts the Christians in Colossae to pray and and to keep on praying, to devote themselves to prayer. And I think that the rest of this verse, it kind of gives more direction as to what kind of prayer Paul is referring to. It's prayer that's marked by thanksgiving. Paul, you know, he's referred to thanksgiving throughout this letter. If you had read from, or just from the beginning to now, he, he had mentioned, he's mentioned it before. So in chapter 1, Paul starts off this letter in verse 3 saying, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And then a few verses later, Paul says that they should give thanks for the very same thing. He writes saying that they should give thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And there's a purpose to this Devoted practice of giving thanks. And it's there in verse 2. Paul wants them to be watchful. Some translations say keeping alert. This, this word, it shows up in the Gospels when Jesus is talking to his disciples about the end of history. When he returns to make all things new, when Jesus comes back, will he find followers that are still awake in a world where it's just easy to fall asleep? Will they be awake? Paul recognizes the vulnerable place the Colossians are in, too. Some of them are new Christians, and they must have been tempted at times to convert back to their former paganism. They're a religious minority with neighbors who don't understand them, think they're kind of weird, and false religious teachers who are coming in and saying, hey, you need more than Jesus. You need a religious experience. You need extra rules and regulations. And not only that, think about this. The the apostle Paul has been imprisoned for proclaiming the very same faith that they now profess. So I bet at times their old life must look pretty good to these new believers. But Paul encourages them, pray, pray, and don't stop praying. Stay awake. You know, it might not feel like it at times, but there's this unfolding story, this redemptive arc to history that's authored and carried out by Christ that's older and bigger than Rome. Your view of what threatens you, it might be too big. And your view of God and what he is doing in the world, it might be too small. And so he tells him, pray and stay awake to what is really true. So this question we're asking, how do we do life with those outside of our community? Paul says, start with Thanksgiving that keeps us awake. Thanksgiving, you know, it reminds us that the God who gave us new life is the same God who's still living, still active in our world, in the lives of our neighbors. Are you awake to this reality? You know, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you've read The Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the famous C.S. Lewis um, set of books, but it reminds me of my favorite one of those books. It reminds me of Shasta and Aslan in The Horse and His Boy. Um, Throughout the book, Shasta, who's the main character, he's this boy who's grown up outside of Narnia. And um, he's never heard of Aslan. But throughout his journey, Shasta, he, he... Um, he comes into these strange interactions with a lion. And at first, he's not sure if this lion is a friend or an enemy. Um, But by the end of the book, he finds out that it was Aslan. Aslan was the lion who's been working behind the scenes, active, present. Sometimes clearly, right? Sometimes confusingly, sometimes without Shasta even knowing. Aslan's been guiding him, saving him, protecting him. How did God do that in your life? What are the ways that he's, he's, he was clearly guiding you to himself? You know, give thanks because he's the kind of God that still does that today, that does that in your neighbor's life, that does that in your coworker's life. And he might just be planning to do that for our other than Christian neighbors. So how do we walk with those outside the community of faith? We start with thanksgiving. It keeps us awake. Um, Awake to this God who who saves. This God who saves because it's not us who saves. God does. And he's alive. He's active today. Um, Next, Paul says we need need more than that. We need intercession too. We need intercession that that opens doors. So look um, with me at verse 3 and 4. Paul, Paul writes there, at the same time, pray also for us. Paul moves from thanksgiving to intercession, prayers spoken to God on behalf of other, other people. Uh, in this case, Paul is asking prayer, for prayer for him, for his ministry and the rest of his team, right? Probably, uh, which included Timothy and Epaphras. And he asks that they pray that God may open to us a door. Paul's again reminding the Colossian church that God is the main mover. God is the one who gave them the gift of faith and will do the same for others. God is the one bringing to bear his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And he's asking that God would open doors for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So Paul is referring to the word that is the gospel message about Jesus, the gospel that he has opened up to the Gentiles or or non-Jewish people, this is the mystery of Christ that Paul's referred to. Because for ages, for ages, for millennia, the Jewish people alone had been the primary object of God's affection. The ethnic group that God had set apart for himself to declare his glory among the nations. But after the resurrection of Jesus, this new age had come upon them. The plan that God had written from the beginning was was unfurling. You no longer had to be or become a Jew to be part of the family of God. No, God, He swung open the doors wide in Jesus and invited everybody, hey, come in. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, you know, what color your skin is, or what you believe about. You just come in. You can be a part of this family too. And faith in Christ. Being baptized in his death and resurrection was what made you a part of God's people. Which means that Paul's target audience, you know, it's gotten a lot bigger, right? Paul, you know, he may have had a lot of accolades, but it doesn't matter how good of a pastor or preacher you are. Hear this. He knows that the powerhouse of his apostolic ministry is the prayers of God's people right? And so just like Les was saying, like, man, you guys may not have a pastor, but for you to know and like grow into this reality that your prayers are what will drive whoever ends up here, like what a, what an amazing, beautiful thing for you to learn in this, this really interim scary period, you know? Paul knows that he needs these people. So he reminds them of their priestly status, that they've been given in Jesus, they can intercede with Christ. And their, pr- their prayers have power to open doors. And intercession, it can be done in like a separated b- manner, right? Paul is asking even here for the Colossians to pray that God would open doors for the word in the lives of people who these Colossians probably won't ever meet. And we do that too, you know? We we did that earlier on in the in, the, in worship, we prayed for people across the world, missionaries whom you might, might not even know, ministering to people that you may never get the chance to meet. You know, And I think it's good that we do that. We should do that. However, in here in verse 3, Paul reminds us of what? His chains, his imprisonment. And by doing so, I think that he reminds us that the Christian faith the Christian life requires us, it requires us to follow Jesus into the world, into the world where, you know, a lot of people don't want anything to do with him. It requires us to familiarize ourselves with, the, with our other than Christian neighbors, to move into their lives, their struggles, their sins, their pains. Intercession, it often requires a compassion that can only be earned when we actually see our neighbor in front of us. And Jesus, he taught this way of intercessory prayer. I think about Matthew chapter nine, you know, when Jesus is, he's gone throughout all the cities and villages in Galilee. He's proclaimed the gospel. He's healed diseases. And as he gets his hands dirty in the lives of these people, he's stirred with compassion, right, for them. And it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed. And helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So, what does he do? He asks his disciples to pray. Pray for laborers to go out into the harvest. He says, Do you see these lost sheep? Pray. Do you see their pains? Familiarize yourself with them. Pray. And God might just open a door. For some of us, our, our prayers may seem lifeless. They might feel disconnected from a real life person. And so I'll just ask, is there a person? Is there a group of people that when you think about them, your, your heart is just stirred like Jesus before the crowds? What's a doable next step for you to, to enter into their life, to familiarize yourself with them? Not out of obligation, but out of compassion for them. So how do we walk with those outside the community of faith? Paul calls us to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that God might open doors in the hearts of our neighbor. And as you pray for them, familiarize yourselves with them, their lives, their pains, their longings. And then just like what happens in Matthew chapter nine, have you ever caught this as you've read through this, that gospel? when Jesus asks his disciples to pray for more laborers, what happens next? He then sends them out as ministers, as laborers to those people. And just like that, Paul here turns his attention to the Colossians own ministry among their neighbors who don't know Jesus. And so in answering this question, how do we, how do we live among those outside this community of faith? Our third point, um, is we, we need wisdom that answers our neighbors' questions. So look at the beginning of verse 5. Paul writes, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. First off, this term here, outsiders, that Paul uses is not a derogatory term. You know, he's not calling other than Christian people names. He doesn't view them as lesser than. Jesus even used this language when he was explaining to the disciples. Um, why he spoke to them plainly, but to those outside, he spoke in parables, right? Paul has expressed his desire for the Colossian church to walk in wisdom before. He's been praying that they'd grow in wisdom. In chapter one, he writes, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And this word uh, here, walk. It's a Jewish way of describing a way of life, right? It's not just head, wisdom, intellect. No, it's Paul's assuming that the Colossians' way of life will naturally weave them in and out of the lives of their other than Christian neighbors. That they will they'll rub shoulders with those people, right? Um. And so, oh, sorry, I lost. they'll be be interacting, right? We should be interacting with those people uh, and in a way that's shaped by wisdom that comes from above. There is a Jesus-shaped way that we're supposed to interact with our neighbors in a not-Jesus-shaped way. And for Paul, knowing that the Colossians are a religious minority in a world largely hostile to them, he encourages them to live in a way that might earn them an audience, pique their curiosity instead of putting something in the way of them and Jesus. And so when you're visiting UNL's campus, right, and you're walking outside the student union, I don't know if you've been there, if you you can just picture it in your mind, and you see those kind of red in the face, angry men on their soapboxes with a Bible in their hands, yelling horrible things, that Jesus would never say. It's okay. It's okay for you to say to yourself or to say to your other than Christian neighbor, your friend there that's with you. That is not how Jesus would have done it. It's okay for you to say that because we've never, we never see Jesus talking to pe- to, like that to people who don't know him. We don't. We just don't. We do see Jesus talking like that to people, to religious folk, religious leaders who think that they know him, but really don't, right? That's severity, that um, we do see Jesus talking to people like that. But we don't see him talking to people who don't know him with looking like that, with words like that. So we're to walk wisely among outsiders. And part of that wisdom is recognizing we're in God's world. We're in this age where Christ has come again and, and he's come, he's come, he will come again. And that age is going to come to a close at a time that we don't know. And so Paul exhorts the Colossians to make the best use of this time. And so while we walk with our other than Christian neighbors with wisdom, there's this like non-anxious urgency that I think Paul is calling us to. Where we grab up every moment the Lord gives us, every open door. He presents to us. Look at verse six. <clears throat> Paul focuses on our speech, our speech with our other than Christian neighbors, because it's often our words, right? That lead us out of wisdom and into foolishness. He writes, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Um, this word gracious can refer to the nature of how we speak. Our speaking with and about other Christians, it should always be gracious, whether they're here or not, right? Um, But this word, it can also refer to the content of our speech. Our speech should be about divine grace. We're to talk about Jesus and we're to do it in a way that's seasoned with salt, right? A way that, that our audience can connect with and that's interesting and not weird to them. It's fascinating um, to read through the book of Acts, for example, uh, which recounts the ministry of the early church and to take Paul's words to the Gentiles and his words to, to, to the Jews and put them side by side because they're completely different. Paul spoke of Christ to the Gentile people when he did it. He made sure to do it in a way that they could understand. Um, and he often didn't use, well, he didn't use the Torah, right? He, he started with their own poets, with their own philosophers, right? He, he observed their life, their religion, and communicated the gospel to them in a way that they would appreciate, in a way that they'd want to know more, right? And Paul recognizes there's no one-size-fits-all fits, fits all way to share about Jesus. The message has to be catered to the audience, their culture, their desires, Their lives and pain points, which is why he says at the end of verse six, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The wise way we walk among outsiders, it will naturally elicit curiosity, their questions. And when those questions come, we grab up every opportunity and we speak about Christ in a way that's gracious and wise and interesting. Um, When I was a freshman in college, um, I was a brand new Christian. I was zealous about my new faith and about sharing it with others. And I went into my freshman year um, not knowing my roommate, which was fine until it wasn't fine. And I discovered that my roommate, you know, he was interested in more than just getting an education. Who'd have thunk, you know? And so I would just watch him every Thursday. Friday, Saturday night, come home um, after a a heavy night of partying and drinking. And, you know, he'd often bring home a friend. And um, I started to get frustrated. And even worse, I started to get self-righteous. And so I did what every self-righteous Christian would do in that moment. I started to share my faith. Which means that every night, I'm not even joking when I tell you this, every night when he'd come home and keep me from my beloved sleep, I'd hop out of my bed and I'd grab my giant ESV study Bible, which is like seven of these Bibles, right? It's ginormous. And I would slam it on, on my student desk, you know, and I would start to read it in front of him and i would accompany my nighttime bible public reading with a few self-righteous grunts and moans (sighs) you know and i think you can imagine that my my evangelistic attempts they did not work Uh, with my roommate it didn't spark any curiosity in him about jesus you know there was so much passion Right? But so, so little wisdom and graciousness. So before we're ever presented with opportunities to speak about Jesus to our other than Christian neighbors in a way that they'll hear us, before they before they gather up the courage, you know, to ask us questions about Jesus, they're watching us, they're observing our lives. They're watching the way that we parent and grandparent. They're watching the way we talk to our spouse, the way that we care for creation, the way we work, the way that we deal with authority, handle stress, the way that we handle leisure and play, the way that we handle politics, how much we drink in social gatherings. You know, the the things that we throw out with the trash, the signs that we put in our yard, the books we're reading the ways we respond to criticism, the ways that we use money, the way we talk about sex, the clothes that we wear. You know, you and I are a city on a hill. What do your neighbors see? Whatever they see, would it make them curious about Jesus? Or would it make them feel like Jesus has nothing new to offer them? Or worse, that all he has to offer them is judgment and condemnation. You know, thank goodness that it isn't up to us to save the world, to save Fremont, right? Like, it's not up to us. Jesus was at work in your life before you ever knew him. He was praying for you, wooing you with his grace, ordering your life so that you might stumble your way towards Him, He entered into the mess of our world. He moved into the neighborhood at a great cost to him. His wisdom, his way of life, you know, it it became attractive to you as, as he gave you the gift of faith, as he spoke gracious words, words of life, words that met you where you were at. And like he did with Paul, who wrote this letter, who, remember, was Saul of Tarsus before he met Jesus. He met you on the way he took your violence, your lust, your foolishness into himself. He absorbed it and the judgment that it deserves on the cross and offered you new resurrection life. He gave you himself full of wisdom and mercy. He gave you brothers and sisters in the faith, a new family. He, He made you a priest or priestess with a story to tell about God's world and your place in it. He's he's forgiven us for the ways that we've had a small view of God and so tried to save our neighbor by ourselves. He's forgiven us all the ways we've closed ourselves off from our neighbor and kept the gospel to ourselves. And so now, rooted in him, loved by him, given grace by him, we get to turn and offer that very same thing to our neighbors that don't know him. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Father, what, what an amazing uh, call. What an amazing thing that you have invited us to in saving us and in and, and drawing us to yourself. Um, man, we don't have to, to hustle to make something of ourselves. You've given us such a crazy uh, vocation as your sons and daughters. You've made us... Ministers of reconciliation that you send out into the world, into our workplaces, into um, our our homes, into this city, um, into the places where we play, into the places where um, we work as ministers of reconciliation, people who carry just the salt and light of the gospel. Um, and so, Lord, just I pray for Grace Church and myself, just that I, I wouldn't become cold to this, hardened to this, you know, hardened to you, um, that I would remain just so open to you and to my neighbor um, and to be curious about who you're, you're, you're wanting me to invite um, to to come in to this beautiful community, uh, this family of God, and to find meaning in in life and resurrection and forgiveness. Um, Yeah, I just pray that you'd be with us as we uh, let your word kind of just do its work in us. Um, Thank you for Christ. Thank you for saving us and rescuing us to yourself. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, well, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we get the opportunity. Um, You know, like when we do the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming.